Hey everyone, my name is Tyler. This is SufferMap. I'm with my friend Matthew Stanley. Um, we are here again for the second part of our episode with our friend Nathaniel Perrin, um, talking about knowledge and jealousy in the work of Proust and Austin. Uh, we're really excited. Um, and we wanted to jump in here for our second intro, uh, kind of talk about some of the things that we'll be discussing in uh, the second part of the episode, the second part of our conversation, and kind of talk about a little bit about what we talked about last week. So, Matthew, what are your thoughts? Hey, uh, I know you're working on a website for Nathaniel. Uh, what's that all about? Well, Nathaniel is a, okay, it's a little over my head, if I'm being honest. Uh, but he, so he's, uh, he's like a cloud engineer. And he, well, first off, he's very talented in a wide variety of different stuff. He's kind of like a jack of all trades when it comes to things like cloud computing, cloud engineering, and like... He's AWS certified. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's just got like a lot of different skills. And so he, he's basically like a, like a, uh, he's like a gun for hire for like a lot of people that work in cloud computing and, um, you know, like cloud architecture in general. And so he like solves complex cloud problems um, for a wide variety of different uh, clients, types of clientele, right? All kind of within the tech space. So I've developed a website for him. Uh, his company is called uh, Kylo, which is C-A-E-L-O. Um, it means like from the heavens or the heavens. It's it's Latin. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a nerdy name, but it's Nathaniel, you know, so it makes sense. Very on brand. Very on brand for him, yeah. Um, so yeah, we uh, are finishing up development on that site uh, should be live next week. Actually, um, really excited for it. Uh, this is the May first that I'm recording this. Great. So, uh, how can people go access that website? It's uh, Kylo.io. Uh, okay. As I believe the um, hyperlink. I don't have it in front of me. No um, worries. Kylo.io. I because I haven't done any of the DNS stuff yet. I'm Fair. mainly a designer, guys. Anyone who's listening, don't think I'm actually good at any of this development stuff. I'm mainly a designer, so. I just I wanted to plug his services one because I know you guys connected through uh, this conversation and uh, turned into a business opportunity for both of you, which is really cool. Um, yeah. And I'm just I'm really excited about Nathaniel. Um, I just think he's brilliant and really enjoy whatever he's working on. So thought I might try to plug him, you know, because he took time out of his busy schedule to hang out with us and and chat. Um, so I thought I'd just plug his uh, his new project. Yeah, Nathaniel and I are very similar because we're both like we're both like freelancers in the tech space but he's he's like the robocop version of me right he's just like his his level like the things he's working on are just so far beyond me i just like make pretty websites you know what I'm yeah you basically you've got crayons and paper and uh, mommy puts your picture on the fridge right oh yeah homie is working with graphs okay um so yeah he's really learning exciting. his multiplication tables yeah, and he can offer. Okay, and here's another thing: he can offer all of his services in Swedish. Well, Ooh. I, I I have barely English. I can barely offer my services in English. So go use him. Really, I mean, he's fantastically talented in a wide variety of ways, and he's easy to work with. Which is, listen, in the tech world, that's it's it's really important. Your agency is called Troglodyte agency correct no it's not <laughs> stop <laughs> telling people that okay <laughs> anyways well i mean you told me you struggle with english <laughs> <Stop. laughs> i'm sorry oh man um thank you everybody for being here we appreciate it um so this is part two of our conversation with nathaniel there's just so much good stuff we felt like we had to break it up into two um we really hit on some interesting concepts in this second half. Um, the things that really stood out to me, the main sort of line of thought is the, the experience of narrativizing our lives of this inner monologue that rolls on in our heads, constantly trying to make things meaningful and naming things and describing things and just the endless flood of words that try to make sense of our existence, how futile that is and how it can produce such pain. Um, we really got into, we got into Nietzsche's concept of the man of resentment in uh, near the end. And just to kind of like briefly define that, 
Um, for Nietzsche, resentment is basically, uh, as you might think, like it's close to resentment. It's it's this anger. It's this vengeful spirit. And he describes a lot of human behavior as having this resentment at the heart of it, this desire for revenge and vengefulness. He even, what's interesting is Nietzsche even interprets forgiveness as revenge. Um, it's basically a way of saying, um, like in forgiveness, I am higher than you and stronger than you, and therefore I withhold my right to revenge. It's this way of um, recouping some of the loss of enjoyment from this person uh, impinging on you. It, it, his, his theories are very interesting. Um, don't know if I'd fully buy that interpretation of forgiveness, frankly. But the point is that we get into this idea of how telling yourself this story about yourself and about your world and having to narrativize everything to make it meaningful is uh, exhausting and um, it doesn't allow room for forgetting. And what's important for Nietzsche about forgetting is that it allows you to kind of flush your system out in order to be able to, to move on, to be full of life and innocence and strength and these sort of things. So um, we get to that towards the end, but if you listen to uh if you listen to the conversation from the perspective of how does language and narrative um, play such a big role in ourself and what are kind of the downsides of that and uh, the, the pain that that produces. Um, Tyler, did, did you kind of pick up on that? Uh, was there anything else that you felt like really stood out to you in the second half of the conversation? Yeah. I, it's very interesting because I think this conversation, like many of our conversations, both illuminates the ways in which we think very similarly and also the ways in which we kind of come to the same problem from different angles. Like you're speaking very psychologically, which I love, right? Um, I absolutely agree with everything you said. I also want to add that my my approach was much more linguistic, right? Um, which is kind of the same thing that you're talking about, right? You're, t- you're talking a lot about language. One thing that really stood out to me in our conversation is the use of language. Um no, I mean, not to give every, anything away, but we talk a lot about f- speech, right? Particularly the way that characters are talking and how talking itself, speaking to another person, oftentimes influences the way that, say, something like jealousy um, flourishes, right? Or how, uh, how it can um, encourage particular parts of a relationship between two people, right? And it's very interesting to me that language is this thing that um for proust's character um language is this way of pushing something away of like capturing something of holding it of controlling it of placing it well it's placing it within the realm of language right um it's defining it um but it is also holding it at its arm's length right as if you know you were to hold like you know you were to hold, you know, something disgusting away from you, like a trash bag, you know, you capture it, you hold it, you don't want it to go anywhere, you don't want it to spill, right? But you're also holding it away from you, right? Um, It's very interesting how Nathaniel brilliantly points out that Austin's fix for this relationship that Proust's character has uh, with his romantic partner is opposite. So for Austin, the breakdown of jealousy is in the breakdown of speech, right? It's kind of this reclamation of childlike gibberish, right? This way in which a you know a a man who is no, who's known for like his well thought out responses, being calm and collected, and like speaking well, knowing what to say at the right times, you know, very polite, a well mannered gentleman, somehow loses his speech, loses his ability to speak well in the mutual recognition of his love for another person, right? In his recognition of, of his love for um, Jane Austen's female character, right? So these are the things that I picked up on, and and we get into a lot of detail in the episode, but it's it kind of just blows my mind how Nathaniel was able to bring all these ideas together in in, in one paper. Um, it, it was very, very cool. Very cool experience. Yeah, I highly recommend for any of the folks who haven't done so, we, we did post a link to Nathaniel's paper. Um, the name's a little long. I think it's like a jealousy and knowledge, uh, textual interpretation in Marcel Proust and Jane Austen. Um, and it, it touches on Marcel Proust's Swan's Way and Jane Austen's Emma. I highly recommend you go and read it. 
Um, it's really well written. And um, I, I hope that our conversation stimulates your interest in going a little deeper. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to us in our conversation. Uh, this is part two. And um, we will have another episode for you next week as well. Thanks, everybody. It's interesting. There's yeah. like so much of this, like, uh, so I immediately like focused a lot on like language and what was happening in language in, in your analysis. And I think like, cause one thing I'm super interested in is kind of, uh, consumer mythologies, right. Following mm-hmm. after like Roland Bart and yeah. kind of like the ideology of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Bart talks about is he talks about how like, consumerism kind of forces you to live in a world of of mythologies where everything is kind of like everything is kind of like constantly fragmented and is constantly like floating without a history right you kind of like take an object and then you kind of just like strip it of the things that make it uncomfortable right yeah um our iphones are a great example of this right it's literally stripped of its history the fact that it's made by you know kids that would rather kill themselves in many cases than make another iphone you know Mm -hmm. um and then it kind of we you know consumerism kind of just like presents us this object with this brand new mythology kind of hidden behind it it seems like that's exactly um what swan is doing to odette you know he's kind of like taking her and like stripping her of her reality and then like reconstituting her of some basic elements of his own devising right and this is clear in the um in the painting right and this is clear as well in the sex scene that you talk about where Mm -hmm. you you say for Swan, this intimate moment is not a unique particularity to be enjoyed and interpreted in itself, but rather becomes a simulacrum, a manifestation of some general metaphysical truth that can only be purely enjoyed through aesthetic sentiments and thoughts. And that like yeah. that like blew me away because I think that same thing is happening in your analysis of Austin, but it's exactly the opposite. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, super. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, but I, I found it super interesting. Well, there was the imagination was the thing that supplemented that particular to make it meaningful. It was, it's the imagine, it's the imagination, the fantasy function that reconstitutes this stripped object as meaningful. Yeah. 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 And, and part of that too is sort of, um, the obsessive need for narrating things, which is, Hmm. um, there was this fascinating little essay um, written by um, Strauss, and not P.F. Strauss and his son. Um, I think I shared that with you, Matthew, before. Um, it's sort of arguing against narrativity. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, it's like a, it's like a short, like philosophical essay, but he he argues that um, everyone's about narrativity now. Like, it's I mean, record does the mm-hmm. cool kind of way. Then there's like the anthropological, not so cool kind of narrativity. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> bland, um, but everyone's into it. And he's kind of arguing against, and he says like, actually, um, and he actually uses Proust against narrativity too. He says the, the idea that we have to structure our lives in terms of narratives um, just does is not a universal thing. If you look at Buddhism, for example, there mm-hmm. is more interest in episodic moments, and Proust has a lot of episodic moments too. But I think even within the episodic moments, there's tons of narrativity going on. A lot of characters are busy imposing narrative descriptions on um, these events. Um, and it's, it's sort of something that um, uh, he, he's kind of like treated as sort of um, more trash literature. But I think he's actually very interesting. Eckhart Tolle, um, he's sort of like a new age guru kind of person. But he thinks mm. the fundamental problem with um our nature is that we identify ourselves with our thoughts and that we're always thinking and describing and naming things he thinks he sort of sees like the i don't want to like project too much on them but you could take him as saying he sees the original sin as naming things it's just the unnecessary introduction of language to entities around us um right and when it becomes like a compulsive need to always be narrating describing things then you're all you're detached from the the presence of objects and you're sort of now you're floating further and further away the deeper you go into this language it's internal monologue um and i think it's a it's such a fascinating sort of diagnosis of what's happening in proust who's it's <laughs> thousands of pages on there's no there's really no plot at all 
there's like moments that happen, but there's really like nothing that actually happens or unfolds or all that. It's just one sad, lonely man at, late at night trying to make his life meaningful. Um, and in volume seven says, the reason I wrote all this is trying to make my life meaningful in an aesthetic way. And he believes like through aesthetic creation, we can overcome loneliness, solipsism and all that. Um, but the work so it, seems to prove the opposite. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it, it really is a beautiful work. It's so, it's fun to read and it, he's just like a master of imagery. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone can pull off the extended metaphor in the same way as him since like Homer. Homer is like really good at like describing things in very extended similes and metaphors. And Proust can do it like on the same level as him. There's so few writers who can pull that off with this such uh, precision and um, sort of uh, dexterity. Interesting. Uh, I don't want to sound like a... I, I kind of feel bad for even bringing this up because we've mentioned it I, on, on our podcast. We've mentioned it so much, but some like, I feel like this relates so much to what I've been studying a lot of, which is the existentialists, right? Matt, mm-hmm. Matt knows what I'm talking about, right? This idea of otherness yeah. that they talk about a lot, right? This idea that like, there's something language in many ways is kind of like the thing that is kind of in, in some ways bringing things close, but also pushing them away. You know, there's, yeah by defining some stuff, you're also enacting this dance of otherness with other th- mm-hmm. other beings, right? That you can't really get through. Uh, yeah. So thinkers like Martin Buber um, mm-hmm. will draw and- Right, right. I thou. And other people that kind of like draw on the pseudo Dionysius, right? They kind of talk about how mm-hmm. si- silence, okay, and this is actually getting into Austin. Silence is kind of like that mediating space where where two others draw in to discover each other in a way and now i but here's the thing i don't like i don't know what i I, it's not like i disagree or i agree that's not the frame i want to put that in i just like don't know Mm -hmm. at what i think about that you know what i'm saying um Mm -hmm. so because i wanted to bring up this so you talk so you have like this you talk about the scene between knightley and uh and emma right right Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Knightley and Emma, where he kind of like has this massive breakdown of language, right? Mm-hmm. You you mention the you talk about the fix for jealousy, and you eliminate like three ways that jealousy is kind of fixed in Austin, in, especially in this meeting between mm-hmm. Emma and Knightley, and that is fragmented speech, mutual recognition, and sensibility met with sympathy. Yeah. Um, th- these first two bits are like particularly interesting interesting to me fragmented speech and mutual recognition could you like go into that and kind of explain what you mean there yeah um so the original idea with like the fragmented speech is that when someone like have forms full coherent sentences there's always a movement for sort of um planning calculation involved with that um like i'm like planning out this sentence as i speak um Mm -hmm. And seeing like where it's going. So there's always sort of like a possibility of like, okay, I'm going to try to, here's my strategy for getting around this and trying to get her to confess this kind of thing, which is a lot of like what Proust's conversations are about is like how we would try to maneuver other people in conversation to get them to say the right things that we want them to hear, whether it's a revelation, um, some information or a confession where we just like get them to recognize and we recognize that they recognize certain like their mediocrity or something like that, like their shame. Um, but when there's like fragmented speech, unless if you're like a, like very ironic or self-aware, you could like try to perform it, I guess. But like fragmented speech, if it's like a, a total honest breakdown, it, it it it's you're just like putting out there what's inside. It doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. Um, and unless you scripted this beforehand, which is not the case with Nightly here, um, not the case like with m- many breakdowns. It's like you're just like exposing everything that's happening and trying to like throw words out in a way to try to communicate what you're saying in a way that's not really calculated or planned um, in the same way that full sentences can be. And it's sort of an, an exposure and an intimacy. Um, it's kind of, it, it's embarrassing mm-hmm. um, in a public situation. Like if you're giving a presentation, the last thing you want to do is revert to fragmented speech. Yeah, and talk um, like Knightley does. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. Um, and I think like, uh, Matthew can weigh on more of this. Um, as I'm thinking about it now, 
it's sort of like this uh, Freudian regression to a childhood speech where like you're you're regressing to this childhood state where um you're like is childish speech patterns uh we're speaking in fragments and there's sort of a, a deeper um i don't like the word authenticity but you're more forward and like um upfront with what you're trying to mean and what uh, but you're just struggling to express it properly um hmm. and i think like with the, the psychoanalysis and matthew can weigh in on this like you're trying to like regress back to that sort of that the, the moment the origin of the trauma in order to destroy it um and i think that's sort of what's happening is like when you revert to like this childish state it's sort of this breakdown is trying to deconstruct what happened in the past is uh, the original trauma uh, in order to genuinely um create something new and build a better future i don't know like, for night later it's probably it's not really a childhood trauma kind of thing but it's sort of that idea of like a childhood regression or to destroy this pathology and then like work toward a cure moving forward yeah what you're attempting to do there is to you're trying to symbolize something that's unsymbolized and you need to get it into the system of symbols language language being a system of symbols you have to convert that thing into a symbol in order to get it into the system so it can run and function and do its meaning making work so it's sort of like you have a machine that's like missing a piston and so it's misfiring until you can get all the pieces functioning, the the function of meaning making isn't going to work. I mean, he's, his mind is like an engine misfiring with a piston because he can't symbolize what's happening. He's trying to get, he's trying to get unstuck, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so yeah, that's a very good image of trying to get unstuck. Um, and so, yeah, the fragmented speech, um, what ends up happening is like, at least it's sort of mutual recognition, which is the second thing uh, you were highlighting there. Um, and sort of the idea behind the mutual recognition is not like you, you it's not that you just both recognize that each other exist in some way. Right. You, you both recognize um, each person's needs and that you are both trying to be honest um, with the, uh, each other, even th- through or beyond the symbolic system. Um, so in the case of Austin, um, there's sort of this mutual recognition, like, okay, uh, like w- we both love each other kind of thing. Let's get married. Um, and there's just a complete breakdown, total honesty between the two. And there's a recognition of the honesty. Um, and it has to be mutual because it's not like one person can be honest, the other dishonest and everything works out. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and, and that's sort of what happens in uh, Proust is that like Swan confronts Odette about are you seeing other people, and she's sort of like she keeps dodging it and all that, um, and he keeps like trying to pin it down because it's only it's only aggravating sort of his pathologic suspicions, and she keeps dodging. She's like, you know, let's just not talk about it. So he was attempting to like some form some sort of honesty, even if it was like, from like pathological suspicions. Um, she completely just like um, kind of gives him like a slap in the face, um, so to speak, and just like drops it as it is. And they sort of like they they live together and married, and they're it's like quiet and happy. But there's always like a distance between the two of them, um, and it, it's never resolved this tension. Um, and like at the end of the novel, like Swan's dead, and it's not really clear if they ever actually like, dealt this out. So there's this sort of this unre- unresolved tension because of this lack of mutual recognition where she refused to recognize his desire for honesty so that he can see and say, like, okay, we're both being honest. Uh, I'm trying to find it right now. There's also this, in that conversation, it seems like uh, Swan is doing the exact same thing that Odette is doing as well, right? He's kind of like, or, well, actually, I don't know if I want to say that. He, he He's doing something very similar. Like you mentioned how he says like, I love you. I love you. Or like he talks about his love in a very kind of like rigid and formal manner. Like, you know, yeah, I love for you and conversational gambits. Yeah. It, it's all right. about this like, game. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, like bartering with her yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah. You know, these things yeah. that I do for you now give me this. Right. Um, so am I right in kind of thinking that there's like, there's a similar, there's all actually a, mu- a mutuality in the way that they're attacking the conversation there as well right yeah 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 exactly yeah so uh, that's the thing too is like in his attempt to be honest he like he's in, he's not even aware of how to be honest because he right. knows like he can't trust her on some instinctive level 
Um, so even though like he he bears his bears his soul, so to speak, on some level, but there's a, there's a gambit involved in doing that. It's planned. Um, he's trying to like draw out what's happening, and it's she probably can detect this in some capacity. Um, so yeah, I, I, in the paper, I sort of like say like a, a lot of a lot of the fault resides with her with like um, sort of not being willing to reciprocate this exchange, even though they are both at uh, fault. It's kind of funny, like when I was, uh, um, it's just like one of the later drafts too. I had the, my supervisor look it over, and in this section, this page you're looking at, she crossed it out. And she said, "You're mansplaining here," um, <laughs> which I just was like astounded by. I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of astounded by. It. I mean, this is like at Ween before I like, was realizing that it was sort of going more of the the progressive bent, um, but. Yeah, because she thought like it's because you aren't placing more blame on or equal blame on Swan here, as uh, with her. But my point is like it's not that she's entirely at fault; they're both at fault. But you can't just right. say that she's entirely innocent. Um, I think it was really weird, to, yeah, to refer to as mansplaining <laughs> um, right. when I'm just trying to point out that there needs to be a mutual exchange on both sides because I'm a, a male writer. I, uh, I guess that wasn't proper for me to point that out, that women mm. should be held accountable to some degree. Right. Um, yeah, you got to watch out, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> should have uh, known better. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember for this next time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so talk to me about what this sensibility met with sympathy means. Yeah. Um, so... This is like it's kind of foreign language to Proust or philo- or continental philosophy, like sensibility and sympathy. It's much more like English in its nature, especially mm-hmm. it's very Austinian too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a big fan of empathy, um, and a lo- yeah, a lot of it depends on sort of the imagination, the sort of the neurotic narration of other people's interior thought lives to yourself. Um, it's always about projecting what you think they're feeling onto them. Um, but with sympathy, um, it's sort of uh, it's a participation more so than empathy. Uh, the idea is like sympathy is the feeling with is the, like the actual Greek where you're feeling with them. Hmm. Um so you're actually taking on sort of some of their pain too. Um, uh, and the idea like mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And in, in Jane Austen, like a lot of like, in a lot of the novels, many of the solutions also depend upon this idea of sympathy. Like you extend sort of your, your emotional um, tentacles, so to speak, to the other person like you meet and you're, you're infected in some capacity with their feelings, but you're able to understand them more deeply and clearly because of that um now you can't like attack extend sympathy to everybody because that's what drive you insane to have feel the entire the burden of everyone's negative feelings in the world but there's like a limited pool and community of people you can help um through like this process of uh sympathies like the sensibility um involved with that being able to have a measured and somewhat like rational regulation of um, so your feelings be being able to participate in the emotional apparatus of other people um, and like a strategy. Yeah. Um, not quite a, not a strategy as much as sort of an ethics. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So like you, 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 it's hard to predict like what will happen with emotions um, if you like let them go. Um, so the idea is like, if you have like self-restraint control um, and sort of like, if you're able to like rationally uh, control your emotions, it's just sort of like a Jane Austen co- um, concept. Then you can sort of participate on a limited degree with other people and use it to understand them better, to see where they're coming from. And then you can like, collaboratively, that helps to not only build trust on one hand, but furthermore, uh, help you like, craft a solution or build some sort of resolution to the problem together. Um, so right. it's sort of this mutual recognition um, and this like mutual feeling too, which talks about mutual feeling. Um, and this can be used for resolving the trauma or the problem or whatever's at hand. Yeah, I think it's pretty notable that 
uh, at the end of the novel, you, uh, or at the end of the uh, piece, you end up like on a very positive note, actually. Like you, you end on this positive note that like, hey, solipsism is not the fate or the ultimate uncontrollable destiny of all thought. That like there is the ability to connect with other people, come to an understanding through dialogue, through mutual participation, through uh, openness and through building trust um, and by like actually foregoing that need to know that like opens up the space of true understanding actually taking place. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think like one of the fundamental philosophical flaws of our world is the, the, the craving for Cartesian certainty um just like beyond all doubt like it has to be proven and all that and it introduces many social implication problems um for how we relate to one another and right um unfortunately like as the world becomes more disembedded and um globalized you you can't build small communities of trust in the same way as before um there are probably solutions for them moving forward but um a lot of trust and openness depends on your ability to like see the same person again and again um and yeah so uh to return to the earlier point about openness of ethics so i i am optimistic about the ability of like detaching yourself from neuroticism and sort of obsessive um, narrating of other people's thoughts and your thoughts and how they wronged you and all that um because if you take like an ounce of negativity and mix that in with obsessive narration, then you just have people like who are, um, it's just the foundation of slave morality is the, the man of ressentiment, as Nietzsche mm-hmm. would say, you're just constantly living in anger and resentment of other people in the ways that you think they've wronged you. Um, even though they could, they're probably not even aware of it. Um, even if it, it, it's imagined, perceived or like is like some small slight that happened but it's, it's constant exacerbation of these things um i'm reminded but... of that uh that scene in what well, i can't remember what avengers movie is it is because i literally only saw this scene uh but the scarlet witch is like up against thanos and she turns to him and she's like you've taken everything from me and thanos just like looks at her he's like i don't even know who you are <laughs> and yeah. i feel like that's that's like the neurotic person yeah. right the neurotic person of resentment against just like some random yeah. guy who like did something against you know yeah so. well i think for like i mean matthew made a screaming i think with nietzsche like the, the the true person of power is that is thanos right there like he doesn't care he um who this person is like he just acts because he knows what he's driven towards right. the world of power um he doesn't care to be weighed down um by uh the, the slave morality of um sort of everybody else it's sort of like this image of like all um this this strong person is always has these like being held back by the chains of the weaker people trying to detach the strong person from a strong will they're trying to weaken um what's going on and what he what nietzsche seems to tie that to is memory um the strong person is the person who does not remember the strong person is the one who's built on narration the 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 resentment is founded entirely upon memory and imagination like your ability to like re- remember things very like distinctly like, oh yeah that one time five years ago you didn't hold the door open for me kind of thing this is like and then you like you create this catalog of errors um um in which other people are sort of held accountable in this huge ledger you're developing and that's how resentment brews um, whereas Nietzsche thinks like the person who's actually healthy is the one who forgets a lot of these things and just like doesn't care. Um, it's, it's extremely healthy, um, psychological function to forget. Yeah. The, uh, the last chapter of Deleuze's Nietzsche and philosophy lays this out in like the clearest way I've ever read it. Just this idea that for the mind needs like a flushing function mm-hmm. and the man of resentment is somebody who's like their flushing function is broken. They can't forget things. And so painful things just hang around in their mind become like a cancer and it causes them pain. So they become like an animal that's just is acting out of pain. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, she, uh, not she, Nietzsche is like, I mean, the, the problem with most things, as he puts it, is that everything smells too much of blood. That yeah. revenge is in everything. And that uh, like uh, revenge is kind of at the heart of most people's motivations. And in that scene you described, Tyler, I mean, black widow, like, 
uh, Scarlet Witch. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the Black Widow. Uh, anyways, I haven't watched the movie, but the, the character you described there, like, is driven by revenge because they can't forget something, and um, like for Nietzsche, he his fundamental desire is to see revenge uh, go away. Like he, yeah. he yeah. thinks that revenge makes the world an ugly place. And I think that that's like both what he loves about Jesus and like his beef with Christianity yeah. is that Christianity is sort of fundamentally about revenge. Yeah. And I think that he sees that Jesus, Jesus is not about revenge and that Jesus is about re- like Nietzsche even doesn't like reconciliation, but you can mm-hmm. see that Jesus is about forgiveness, about grace, about moving on yeah. and like, and for loving your enemies, you know? Yeah. I think that they're like very close in that respect. Yeah, Rene Girard is like so emphatic on this point. I think it, it's like his most interesting sort of argument is that Christ is not a scapegoat. Christ is not a sacrifice. Uh, he like thinks that's extremely counter the entire logic of uh, the crucifixion. He believes so. All anthropological societies are founded upon the the cycle of violence, cycle of revenge, this memory of feuds and all that. Um, but and this could continues throughout the Old Testament too. Um, but he understands he, he's a Christian or he was Christian because he realized that the Christ crucifixion overturned the entire logic of revenge and um, violence um, through his death on the cross. Um, so to, to say that Christ took on all our sins as a scapegoat sort of violates that because it's just continuing the cycle of violence. What Christ's death does instead is it, puts an end to the cycle of violence by saying, okay, I'm dying and now everything's cleared. And now we can stop this entire cycle. There does not need to be like a ledger anymore. Uh, it's sort of the, the idea of grace for Girard. There are like some problems, I think, with how that sort of theological interpretation, but I think it's really interesting sort of idea that the crucifix, crucifixion and atonement are rooted in sort of the clearing, the forgetting of sins. Um, and that's how forgiveness occurs. Yeah, exactly. That's a jubilee. Yeah, I think it's important, like, when we read Jesus, that, like, Jesus is talking in the language of the old covenant, of the old establishment, but he's talking about a new paradigm shift that he's about to inaugurate. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if we get caught if we get caught up in the logic of, like, oh, we're just translating the old order to a higher symbolic level, you know, like, like you're missing the point because, yeah. you know, it's like how... It's like how uh, Nietzsche talks about how all that's done from love is beyond good and evil. And yeah. evil, it, good and evil, that dialectic is the cycle of revenge because yeah. it's the slave morality. And Jesus is bringing love, which is beyond good and evil. It, it literally escapes out of and moves beyond that paradigm entirely. Yeah. And that's what's happening in Jesus' death yeah. on the cross. Yeah. Like Zizek has the kind of like cynical, like funny sort of atheist take on it is that like, God's death on the cross is his apology for making yeah. everything so <laughs> shitty, but like, <laughs> it's pretty funny, but like, there's this, there is the sense in which God is like, okay, fine. I'm putting it into this myself yeah. sort of action on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah, the, the, the beauty of a Christian in particular that you don't have with any, like any other theological or philosophical system is sort of this definitive ending of the revenge cycle, which is like so fundamental to, most human societies um um but we haven't quite like, escaped the need for scapegoats yet unfortunately so yeah drawing that back to the austin thing so like what happens at, at the end of austin is like nightly has sort of built up these perceived slights um and through open communication um there's sort of this idea like okay that she actually like um isn't that bad after all um, so there's this like, mutual forgiveness uh, that occurs of perceived slights. Um, and the idea is like, it's a forgetting. Um, you are removing sort of these perceived slights or these imagined um, grievances from your psychological reflection. Um, so the, it's like, not that you're like, forget that they ever happened, but it's like, you don't ruminate on it. You're, you've removed it from the circulation of your thoughts um, which is like something that never happens in proofs and why I sort of stuck in this endless solipsistic cycle of like, okay, this person did this, this, and this kind of thing. And there is no resolution to it. It just remains as a festering sore in uh, someone's sort of reflective vocabulary. So I think like a lot of forgiveness and openness is sort of tied to, okay, I'm going to remove this from my vocabulary 
and in effect, like it will never be used as a weapon against you in speech, but also at the same time, it will never like be a part of how I understand you or reflect on you as a person. Yeah, it's, I, I think of the, the words of the psalmist where uh, God removes our sins from us as far as the East is from the West, you know, and, and scripture even says that he, he forgets them as though they never even happened. I think yeah. that I, I think that's why like Jesus is sort of the Ubermensch because he has this ultimate forgiving power yeah. to like literally see you as a new person again mm-hmm. yeah. and to completely put any of that behind you and just love you for who you are right in that moment as he sees you. I'm thinking about the, uh, that moment in Matthew, I can't remember the chapter or verse where he says, your sins are forgiven. And then they're all like, what? He said, your sins are forgiven, that guy? <laughs> and he's like, "What? which is harder? For me to say that your sins are forgiven or for me to say, you know, pick up your bed and walk or whatever, right? Get yeah, up and walk. walk yeah. Right, exactly. And then he and then he says that to him and he, he's just like healed, right? Like, yeah. um, there, it's a good example of kind of like that dual, like but how Jesus is doing that in two ways, right? He's like yeah. forgiving the man's sin, which is like the bigger deal, right? Like yeah. that's way, way bigger than, you know, having your legs healed. But then he also heals the guy's legs, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, literally creating the guy new in like every way you could imagine, you know, for that audience. Yeah. 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 There's so many like beautiful moments of subversion in the gospels <laughs> and the, the right kind of subversion too. <laughs> it's great. I, I, yeah. I want to study that more. Um, well, we won't get into it, but I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, do you have any uh, any questions for Nathaniel about the paper? Anything in particular? No, honestly, I think we really hit a lot of great stuff. Um, we're pushing almost an hour and a half here, um, and this is like this has been a great conversation. I think that we've really hit the high points. Um, I think that there's a lot here, um, especially. I, I feel like I didn't make so many of the connections to like forgiveness and reconciliation that I feel like this conversation has made. And I feel like there's a whole line of thought there that I wanted to continue, that I want to continue Mm -hmm. to pursue now. Yeah. Um, So I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Maybe we start to wrap up here. Nathaniel, did you, were there any sort of parting or final thoughts that you wanted to offer? Um, Maybe how this connects to work that you're continuing to do. Uh, That might be an interesting angle. Um. Yeah, so I have multiple different projects that are spinning around in my head, um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm more and more fascinated by sort of the the nature of uh, desires, not just for, like, for the foundation of knowledge, but for other things as well, and sort of like um, how that relates to the uh, concepts of change, concepts of uh, limit, um because um just as a give like a brief example whenever we talk about desires one of the the the, the main concept being associated is not um was is either fulfillment or it's limit or unlimited it's the idea of limit and unlimited as related to desire um and one the main concept you associate with change is limit um at what point does one entity become another thing um, and that's a major problem in uh, a lot of uh, 14th century philosophy is like there's huge discussion on the nature of change. Like how does one thing, one entity become another, like how does snow become water? Like when does that happen? When does that occur? There's like, a, how do you identify this limit thing? Um, and I think, and I'm still like putting together a lot of the pieces, uh, the concept of desire is very integral to understanding the nature of change in general um on a metaf- metaphysical level um i, I like wrote a paper um last term um on scotus and aristotle so aristotle's metaphysics at least as it's been constructed for us today the very first sentence of the metaphysics is all men by day nature desire to know um so scotus and his commentaries on all the metaphysics he dedicates the entire preface to this first sentence. And he says, okay, so this sentence means that metaphysics is the highest science. Um, and the scores is like, I love scores because he just draws the most extreme claims out of very short sentences. And then he builds extremely elaborate arguments to like draw the conclusion. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that like the very fundamental sentence of Aristotelian metaphysics is desire to know. 
Um, and I think that's another puzzle piece in there. And he's like, he, he draws up some very fascinating claims in sort of his commentary on that one sentence. And he connects it to Ayurveda's to Anima, which talks about psychology and the soul, um, as well as other lines like the physics and the metaphysics. Um, so yeah, and the, yeah, I'm trying to like explore more of beyond like there's sort of like an epistemological and psychological dimension to desire that we see with like diet time on the symposium, mm-hmm. but also looking at it within other contexts because it shows up in so many different uh, philosophers' works. I mean, like Freud is like a common example, but you could also see like Schopenhauer um bergson for example and others are very interested in the connections between us wanting something or even an entity being drawn towards something um the limit involved in sort of the object of desire so that's something i think one research i think you and i are definitely pressing into kind of similar things right now the i I kind of call this the pathology of knowledge Mm -hmm. of like what are the sort of pathological functional underpinnings of knowledge when you kind of open up the hood yeah. and see what's going on um, yeah. kind of see how is how is desire functioning um, yeah. how is desire producing valuation yeah. uh, within a system and within choices um, what sort of decisions undergird yeah. um, philosophical systems and uh, research directions and yeah. emphases um yeah, there's, there's, there's so much going on there. There's yeah. also the concept of prohibition. You know, mm-hmm. you're thinking about limit. You know, prohibition is at the core of psychoanalysis. Yeah. Thinking about the effect that prohibitions create and how prohibitions essentially create desire is that yeah. you make something desirable through protecting it by setting it apart with a prohibition. You know, it was, it's, it's, it's prohibition itself that inflames desire mm-hmm. um, and creates the object as desirable. Um, and this way they say that that the law creates its own transgression in a way. Mm-hmm. That's kind yeah. of why Jesus is trying to get us past law because it, if you're stuck in the realm of law, you're just going to get stuck in that cycle of desire and transgression yeah. and failure. Um, so yeah. is there's so much, there's so many interesting things there. So yeah, I think, yeah. I think we're kind of tra- trotting a similar path. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. I think that's what's actually interesting about sort of Plato's treatment of desire and happiness is like, he believes that like, we both need to limit our desires, but by doing so we're, we are happier and enjoy actually sort of moving up against that limit even more than if we just left it, like let it grow exponentially. Um, which is, is something else like uh, a modern commentary like Young Chul Han talks about in his work on sort of the agony of Eros. He says like, or a lot of his philosophy actually depends on this concept of the limiting of desires and how our, our complete global ecosystem today is completely, engineered to maximize desire trying to make you want more and more and more because that can be effectively directed toward um making more money so like we live in a system where the philosophy is okay we have to understand like the the underpinnings of human desire so we can manipulate it in order to direct it towards certain financial quarterly goals mm-hmm. um so it's like entire global apparatus designed like not even just like within consumerism, but within the nature of democracy itself. Um, and that's another thing about the interesting thing about um, democracy within Plato is he associates it with sort of this unfettered desires state. He thinks the two are very deeply connected. Hmm. Um, so, and it's like core to capitalism too, is like consumption, consumption, consumption of these desires. So there's like these, and that's why I believe like democracy and capitalism go together in this unholy marriage so well. Um, it's just like this uh, baptizing of desire as the fundamental human principle for global affairs. So, yeah, a lot of my research too, I'm like interested in understanding not um, the, the 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 limit restriction of desire, not just for the sake of like stoic apathy, because I, I believe like desire is a very productive, positive force too, but it needs to be channeled and uh, regulated effectively within this sort of like a limited pool, limited like libidinal economy um, that's sort of closed off from a lot of external motivating factors that are harmful. So yeah, I'm interested in sort of reinterpreting understanding sort of the, the personal ethical role of desire within um, this larger ecosystem we live in, which is so, so uh, antithetical to any idea of limit. Um, hmm. uh, and then looking at how political solutions can also be 
built out of sort of that idea as well. So there's sort of like the social implication side of this abstract metaphysical question interest. That's very interesting. Wow. Well, hey, this has been great. Uh, Tyler, did you have any kind of closing thoughts that you wanted to to offer before we kind of close it out here? Not really. I mean, I think that I, I definitely, uh, so I kind of came in wanting to know more, kind of a, uh, answer some of my own like curiosities regarding your paper, specifically mm-hmm. the sort of stuff that I'm interested in, like especially this issue of like language and otherness. But mm-hmm. I, I, I want to echo what, Matt said, I, f- I feel like we kind of got on this track of like reconciliation and, you know, uh, revenge and all that stuff, which I think is, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's going to be a, a much bigger conversation, especially as, you know, some of the things that are in the works in our society are getting more and more powerful. I think that the conversation is going to become a little bit more important, uh, even more important than it already is. And I think it is yeah. uh, very important. So, yeah, yeah I, I always love these conversations and Matt and I can attest to this and all the other conversations we've had outside of this podcast that like, I, feel, I just feel like we always find, we always start out with a plan to do something and we never end up doing that thing. We, yeah. we always end up doing something way better. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. We always figure out some better conversation that's happening. And I think we did yeah. that really well. Yeah. So, yeah. Really appreciate your time. That's the fun well, it's very, It's yes. very important. You know, it's very Hegelian. The, the oh, yeah. failure is required in order for yeah. the, the success to, you know, Subsume some negation, sublate it. (laughs) Get that vernoomed. Well, I think we'll we'll call it here, guys. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been great. Talk to you guys later.